Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here to introduce an encore episode, one of our favorites from the past. This one is from 2020, and it's all about palm oil and the palm oil industry. I found this topic very interesting. I learned a lot. We talk about what palm oil is. We talk about deforestation, biodiversity loss, climate change, pollution, working conditions, food security, the roundtable on sustainable palm oil, and whether you should boycott versus looking for mm, labels that say that it's been sustainably grown. So we're going to talk about what you can do. Ultimately, just to spoil the whole thing, we came to the conclusion that a boycott is not the best choice. And hilariously, we got like (laughs) a whole bunch of like hate tweets from the palm oil brigade who are like, oh, boycotting is the only way to move forward. And that's not how we feel. And that's not how most of the large organizations in the activism space on this one feel either. So, you know, listen to our research and come to your own conclusions, but please don't send us a bunch of tweets unless you've listened to the whole thing. Okay, thanks. Love you. Bye. I didn't find it super difficult, to be honest, because in pandemic life, I'm mostly buying single ingredients, but I think it was... (laughs) It did prevent me from buying chips for like two weeks. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I found myself looking at the ingredients list more than I normally do because, well, this episode we're talking about palm oil and our challenge was to go without for two weeks. I think it ended up being almost three weeks. And because palm oil, I'm sure you're going to get into this right away, but palm oil has like 150 million secret names. (laughs) So I, I had to Google like every ingredient on everything I was buying if it wasn't a single ingredient item and just be like, is this palm oil? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anything that wasn't like clearly another thing, it could be palm oil. Who knows? Well, we'll talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I, I, I wasn't perfect at this challenge. My biggest mistakes were mostly when people handed me stuff. Like someone was like, Oh, here, have a Twizzler. And I was like halfway through the Twizzler, like nomming happily. And then I was like, Oh no, there's probably palm oil in this and there is yeah for sure <laughs> that's I think that's how that's how we get you on every challenge is like people just are giving you things you shouldn't have <laughs> I know I, I just I'm starting to realize like how kind and generous my friends are <laughs> have a twizzler Kyla oh my goodness thank you <laughs> well and also I think I mentioned this to you but because I started back at the bookstore that I that I work at sometimes it's like the one of my few jobs it's uh slowly reopening but because we were closed <laughs> over Easter we had all this Easter chocolate that was just going to get thrown away. So they they gave some of it to us. And I was like, well, there's definitely going to be palm oil in some of this, but food waste is worse, I guess. And it's, I'm not paying for it. So (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Let's just hang on to it and eat it today now. You've got to binge it in the 24 hour period we have. (laughs) Wait, actually, it's not even 24 hours. It's like 12 hours between palm oil and plastic free. <laughs> so wait, I didn't, I thought that stuff that we already owned was off the hook for, for the plastic free. Does, does it just have to stay in my cupboard now? Oh no. Well, we'll, we'll have to sort that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to count stuff that's already in my house. And I'm just on the record for that now. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So should we talk about palm oil? Yes, please. Pa- I'm actually really 
interested in this topic personally. This is one that I find very upsetting, but also like super, it's just so big. It's such a big topic. I would say it's like kind of on the scale of clothing in the sense that it like touches on a whole bunch of different problems. That's, I think that's really interesting because it is really like a narrow, like it's, it's one kind of oil that really wasn't used that prominently until recently. So it's a kind of a cool story. Okay, cool. I'm really, really yeah. excited. Tell me. I mean, I, I don't know if excited is the right word. <laughs> Apprehensive, <laughs> but curious. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I'll start with just saying what palm oil is. So palm oil, it basically comes from the fruit of oil palm trees, which is it's kind of straightforward. Palm oil, oil palm, you know. Their scientific name is Elias uh, Janensis. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but I don't know. Sounded dead wrong. <laughs> sounded dead on to me. <laughs> is that Latin? We need to brush up on our Latin. <laughs> uh, yeah, my sister took intro to Latin in undergrad, and she basically just learned like pirate words. So I don't know. Wow, <laughs> I don't know if that would have helped. <laughs> like you hear those like pretentious mottos that are always in Latin, and I'm like, Lauren, I- identify that for me. And she's like, eh, I don't know how to say that, but if you ask me what the word for booty is, I can tell you. <laughs> anyway there are kind of two kinds of palm oil that you might get palm oil itself is from the fruit of the oil palm trees whereas palm kernel oil comes from crushing the kernel which is the stone that's in the middle of the fruit i wasn't able to really find anything on whether they're different i don't think they really are but maybe there are some like slight subtleties palm oil is produced a lot There are 66 million tons of palm oil produced annually, so that makes it the most commonly produced vegetable oil. So more than sunflower oil or rapeseed oil or coconut oil or any other vegetable oil. Wait, would coconut oil not technically be palm oil because coconuts grow on palm trees? This was something I was kind of confused about. No, because um, palm oil only refers to the oil from an oil palm, whereas coconuts are from a different kind of palm. And uh, likewise, you know, like carnauba wax and candelilla wax? I don't know the difference. (laughs) Yeah, I don't don't really remember what... Candelilla wax, I think, was we talked about in the veganism episode because it sometimes coats fruit. And carnauba wax is sometimes used in candy. But anyway, those two things are not actually palm oils, even though they're from palms because they're from a different kind of palm tree. Okay, cool. Thank you for clarifying. (laughs) I don't know if I, I think I may have just made things more confusing. (laughs) No, not at all. Definitely not. Point being, oil palm is palm oil. (laughs) Think about it that way. (laughs) And it is the most common oil from vegetable sources. Got it. Yes. And that's a very recent phenomenon. Up until sort of like a few decades ago, palm oil was not used nearly as much. So global production of palm oil has doubled in the last decade. It's really quickly growing oil. And we'll talk about why throughout the podcast. So yeah, as you were alluding to earlier, there are approximately 200 alternate names for palm oil and palm oil derivatives. And they're used in cleaning products and cosmetics and food products. And it can be really difficult to know if there's palm oil and what you're buying for that reason. So I did find a trick that you can use if you're interested in knowing whether there's palm oil in something you're buying. This is not a perfect trick, but there are four root words that will give you an indication that an ingredient might be palm oil derived, although there are other words for palm oil that don't 
start with these four root words or don't have the roots in them. And also there are some roots that aren't palm oil. So. Yeah, they share. Yeah, there was one because um, I know one of the root words is probably palm. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> but there's like a, a vitamin K palmite or something um, is a, an ingredient that I would sometimes see. And I found out in my research when I was trying to decide if I could buy something that vitamin A or vitamin K or whatever palmite isn't always from palm, even though the word palm is in it. So I was like, oh, interesting. This just makes it way more difficult. Usually, though, you can, because we'll talk about this a little more, but oftentimes the reason palm oil is used is because it's cheap. And so for that reason, it's become pretty ubiquitous. So if you're buying something and you don't know whether it's palm oil and it has one of these four root words, it might not be, but it probably is palm oil. I, I just think that's probably a fair assumption to make. So yeah, the first root word that you can look for is palm. I'll just list a couple of the like ridiculous names that are here. So have you ever seen palmitate in anything, Kyla? <laughs> I don't even know. I definitely have. <laughs> I've definitely seen it a lot, but I cannot remember what products it's in. Yeah, I have no idea what it's in. There's also palmoline, palmitic acid, palmitil alcohol, <laughs> hydrate, hydrated palm glycerins. <laughs> and ethyl palmitate. So those are all some variations of palm that you might see, although there are just a whole bunch more. Uh, the next root word you might see is steer, so S-T-E-A-R. So you might see sodium stearate as one of them, or stearic acid. And then there are two that I found when I was, I basically went through my like my cosmetics and looked at the ingredients list. And there was a powder foundation that I had that had two palm derivatives in it, and they both were ridiculously long. So I'm going to attempt to pronounce them. Uh, so the first one is pentaterithylethyl. Wow, that was really good sounding out. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'm not even done. Uh, <laughs> Tetrasostearate. So that's I, one. <laughs> I interrupted you halfway through because I was like, it must be done by now. <laughs> nope, nope. That was just the first word of two for that one. Uh, and then the other one is octildodecyl steroil stearate. So those are both palm derivatives with steer in them. Then the other two are lor. So you might see stuff like sodium lauryl or sodium laureth. And then the last one is glyce. Although this can often be other things, I think, but uh, glyceryl hydrogenated palm uh, glycerides are two examples of that. So if you see any of those four root words, then that might be an indication that there's palm oil in something. But if you don't see those four root words, it doesn't necessarily mean that what you're eating is palm oil free. Yeah, we'll share like I found a website. I'm sure you use the same one that has a list of you can look it up like all the different words for palm or at least as many as they could list. So we'll share that as well. I was using that when I was looking at ingredients and stuff. Another thing to note is that sometimes palm oil can be labeled generically as vegetable fat or vegetable oil. So even if you're looking really carefully for like those specific names, you might not necessarily know. Although the EU has uh, made a rule. So if you live in, in, the, in the EU, then palm oil can't be labeled as generic vegetable oil. So that trick can't be used against you. But Yeah. When I was doing my challenge, I don't know about you, but anytime I saw an ingredient that just said vegetable oil, I had to put the product down because I was like, well, yeah, probably palm. I don't know, but I, <laughs> yeah. it's not, I can't, this, this is a challenge. So 
I actually emailed McDonald's Canada to ask because they listed like <laughs> vegetable oil as an ingredient in their fries. And I was like, can you be more specific? And I sent that two and a half weeks ago. And they've gotten back to me twice to say that they've they're elevating it because they don't know. And I was like, cool. Oh, no. But then I looked it up. I looked up uh, McDonald's in the UK. And probably because of that um, EU ruling, and they've only just left the EU, they listed all of their ingredients properly. And they're not using palm oil in the French fries in the UK. So I assumed that the ones here are probably safe. And I ate a few. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah, my version of that was I had bought ice cream and I was like, oh, fuck, palm oil challenge. Uh, <laughs> but it turned out I was okay. There's no palm oil in it. So I was accidentally not breaking our rules. I mean, we're going to make this a two-part episode, but this whole two-part series is going to be a story of the flaws with palm oil, but also sort of the dilemma that the alternatives might be worse. So what do you do? So I don't I won't want to spoil the ending because otherwise people won't listen to part two. But <laughs> yeah, it's definitely complicated. So we will talk about that. But before we do, we should talk about where people might find palm oil and things like that. First thing to note is that palm oil is in a lot of stuff that you'd buy at the supermarket. So more than 50 percent of packaged supermarket supermarket products contain palm oil. You can look for it in packaged foods like pizza, donuts, chocolate, margarine, noodles, ice cream, bread, chips, cookies, all the good stuff. Literally anything <laughs> with more than one ingredient. Basically, it's used wherever you need a fat of some kind in food. So anything delicious. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it can also be found for similar reasons in personal care products and cosmetics. So deodorant, shampoo, toothpaste, lipstick, stuff like that. And there are also some cleaning products that have palm oil in it. The two other places that palm oil is found are in animal feed, which doesn't directly impact the consumer, but it is sort of like soy in that it gets fed, fed to animals, and increasingly in biofuels. It has something to do with the European Union's rules around biofuel sustainability. I don't look into that that much, but it seems to be a big driver of demand now, so it does kind of matter. Another thing with palm oil is that in African and Asian countries, palm oil is a popular cooking oil. So you might not necessarily see it as much in packaged products, or you do, but you also see it in just, it's like our ver their version of canola oil a lot of the time, or sunflower oil, or whatever the, the local oil you use is. So about 40% of the world's palm oil is consumed in China, India, and Pakistan, and a lot of that is because it's used as a cooking oil there. If you look at the breakdown of the palm oil industry, the food industry uses about 72% of all palm oil. So most palm oil is going into either cooking oil or those packaged products. And then another 18% is taken by cosmetics and cleaning products. And then the remaining 10% is biofuels and animal feed. So that's the breakdown there. So why is palm oil in everything? Palm oil has a lot of useful properties, and that's part of the reason that you see it so often. So one of those is that it is semi-solid at room temperature, which means that it can keep spread spreadable. So if you're thinking about like a hazelnut spread or something like that, palm oil can often be used because the consistency is good and it's what um, they want in, people want in the product. Palm oil is also resistant to oxidation, so it can give products a longer shelf life, which is something that businesses want. 
Another benefit is that it's stable at high temperatures, so it can help give fried products a crispy and crunchy texture, which is another thing that food companies really enjoy. Man, so far you're making this thing sound amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually, palm oil is, it's a really interesting product because it's sort of a miracle oil in a lot of senses. And the, the challenge is this, that we're being very irresponsible with how we grow it. So the last benefit of palm oil or useful property of it is that it's odorless and colorless. So it doesn't alter the look or smell of food products, which again, businesses really like if they're trying to design the like perfect cookie or something, it, the palm oil is not going to impact the flavor. So in addition to those useful basic properties, palm oil is also used in some products because of its health properties, actually. Palm oil doesn't have trans fat, and it actually has a lower saturated fat content than butter. And that's a big part of the reason that food companies have sort of moved towards palm oil. Uh, The reason for trans fats, as I understand it, other vegetable oils basically have to be partially hydrogenated so that they can become more solid, and that creates trans fatty acids, whereas palm oil is naturally hydrogenated, and so it doesn't have trans fats. So a big part of the shift towards the use of palm oil was food companies were sort of looking at the scientists as there was a consensus forming around trans fats. And they were saying, oh, gosh, the public doesn't like trans fats. We're seeing an emerging consensus that it's unhealthy. So we better find a way to get trans fats out of our foods. And voila, palm oil was there not having trans fats and also being really cheap. So that's great. Another reason is actually uh, animal rights to a certain extent, because palm oil and palm oil derivatives were able to replace animal-based fats in foods and cleaning and personal care products. So For example, you used to have soaps with animal tallow in it a lot of the time, and palm oil was able to have the same properties as that. And so it made them the only suitable plant-based alternative. I think at the time, I think now there are some other alternatives, but but it was sort of a a big benefit of palm oil is that it could replace these animal products that um, consumers were sort of pushing the market towards. They wanted plant-based alternatives. And then uh, the... The BSE outbreaks, bovine encephalopathy, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it stands for. The BSE outbreaks that were happening to cows, you know, like mad cow disease in the late 1980s and early 1990s, that really pushed a consumer consciousness away from animal byproducts. And it triggered a larger shift toward palm oil. The irony, of course, being that because it's so irresponsibly like <laughs> grown that now what I think orangutans are like almost they're super endangered because of the palm industry and because of all the deforestation that ha- is happening that I'm sure you'll get into that like, of course, now animals are still being they're still suffering in the process of this. Although, yeah, I guess I don't know like what's better. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was actually, I was listening to a BBC podcast about this today. I've linked to it in the research notes. So if you want to see it, you can. And one of the points that they were making is, like, environmental reasons drive the shift to plant-based products a lot of the time. But if you're shifting from taking animal byproducts from, like, a meat processing plant that's a few kilometers from you, versus shipping in palm oil from Southeast Asia, like what's really more environmentally friendly? And that's a really complicated debate because it also sort of supports the meat industry and blah, 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 blah. 
But it just points to like on every facet, palm oil is kind of the solution to a unique problem that we're having. And in many cases, it seemed like the ethical alternative. And now there are all kinds of problems resulting from how much palm oil we're using. I just find it so interesting. <laughs> yeah, in like a really depressing, <laughs> horrible way. But also, it, it is. You dissociate yourself from it. It's interesting. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, it's hard. Like, it, it's, it's a really good example of like how difficult it is to solve problems. Yeah. And uh, I'll just point to the last reason that we use palm oil, which we've already sort of said, but it is the biggest reason. Palm oil is super cheap because it's a really productive plant. You can produce a lot of palm fruit from oil palms. That's part of the reason that it is such a ubiquitous item in a lot of industries today. It's just super cheap. Who doesn't like cheap additives? So in terms of where palm oil is produced, oil palm trees are actually native to West Africa, but most of the palm oil that's produced today is actually produced in Southeast Asia. Oil palm trees were basically brought to Southeast Asia in the 19th century and for that reason, they were there. And now Malaysia and Indonesia are the biggest palm oil producers. They produce about 87% of global palm oil. So almost all of it, although that's starting to change a little as palm oil is growing, uh, it's starting to be cultivated in other places. So yeah, there are 42 other countries that also produce palm oil, and that includes West and Central Africa, which is where oil palm plants are initially from as well as Southeast Asia. So there are other countries other than Malaysia and Indonesia and Southeast Asia that produce palm oil. And then Central and Tropical South America. So it's it's hot, humid places. That's where palm oil palms grow. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about palm oil production because when we start to talk about the ethical problems with palm oil, having that context is going to be pretty important. So oil palms are, they're grown and harvested on large, medium, and small-scale oil, oil palm plantations. And the palm oil industry is basically dominated by about a dozen corporations that operate large-scale plantations and mills. So a lot of the palm oil that's produced is from those large-scale plantations. And in fact, there are three largest players that they control about a quarter of the industry just by themselves. Musin Mas, Wilma, and Simdarbe. We will talk a little bit more about Wilma later, but just important to note that these are really big multinational companies, but they are actually, in the scheme of the agri, like the agribusiness industry, they're actually fairly small. So most of the really big agri agribusiness companies are, are headquartered in Western countries, and these these palm oil focused ones are smaller. They're still big companies, but smaller compared to the the top agribusiness companies, and, and they're actually headquartered in, in Southeast Asia. So it's kind of an interesting uh, change in global dominance. But although large-scale companies play a big role, there are at least a million small-scale oil palm producers in Indonesia alone. So there's a concentration at the top. Yeah, there are lots of large producers, but there's also a lot of really small producers, and that can make the situation more complicated too. Oil palm trees grow up to 20 meters tall, and they have an average lifespan of 25 years, but they start to bear fruit after only three years, which is a, a pretty small amount of time, and they reach their peak production between years six and eight. So basically what happens, you've got these oil palm trees, and they, they have fruit bunches that they can contain between 1,000 and 3,000 individual fruits, and the fruits are all the size of plums. 
So on these fruit bunches, and the bunches weigh somewhere between 10 and 25 kilograms. So you can kind of imagine that harvesting the fruit of oil palms is pretty physically demanding, right? Because you've got to go up this, this tree that can be about 20 meters tall and hack off branches that have these fruit bunches that are between 10 and 25 kilograms heavy. And you're doing that using a long steel pole with a sickle at the end. And it's it's hot and humid because that's the only place that oil palms grow. So it's kind of, yeah. I genuinely cannot imagine. Like, <laughs> you, as soon as you said they were like 10 to like 20 kilograms heavy, I was like, wait, what? Because you have to climb up <laughs> them. Like climbing a tree to get the fruit isn't bonkers enough when it's already, you said 20 meters tall? Jesus. Did I say, yeah, 20 meters tall. It's, that's tall, man. Ah. Yeah. I was uh, one of the interviews that I was listening to. A journalist was trying to climb up and cut down one of these brand, these uh, bunches. <laughs> and she was like, it's too hot to do this. And eventually she gave up, and the guy that she was interviewing had to go up and go on down. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what kind of challenges we need to do. Yeah, but, just uh... start hacking off trees. <laughs> the city of Ottawa will be so upset with me. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if there's any trees tall enough for me to, to for me to <laughs> climb and hack something off here. Yeah. So another thing is, uh, like sugarcane, oil palm fruit has to be processed within 20 or really quickly after harvesting. So for the case of oil palms, it's 24 hours. And for that reason, there are also these palm oil mills that are usually situated within the country. And that can be a source of problems, too. Anyway, that's all the context that you need to know about oil palms before we start getting into all the problems. So should we talk about the environment first? Well, wait, I thought that would be the biggest one, but now that you're starting with it, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big one, yeah, and it's probably the one most people have heard of. Uh, We'll talk about people, I think, in the second part of the series, but palm oil is a major driver of deforestation. So I found a figure that looked at all the new palm oil plantations that were developed in Malaysia and Indonesia between 1990 and 2005. So Those are the two main countries, and that's a big period of growth for palm oil. And in that case, approximately 55% of new plantations resulted in deforestation. So a lot of the story around palm oil is there's this growing crop, and you need to find places to grow it in these tropical places. And so what ends up happening is rainforests get cut down. Problems, right? Yeah, I mean, that sucks because biodiversity and you know certain animals and insects and plants can grow in rainforests but can't grow in a homogenous group of palm trees i last year i took a bus from singapore to the top of malaysia uh, it was a really long bus ride and <laughs> almost the entire way all i saw were palm trees and like it was something that I knew conceptually going in. I was like, oh, yeah, I know Malaysia is like famous for the palm industry. And I know the palm industry is famous for deforestation. But when I was on that bus going through the country that it just really sunk in because like Malaysia is not a small country. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like compared to Canada, yes. But it took it, like it was like a 10 hour bus ride to get from Singapore to where I was going. And almost the whole way. And I've flown over Malaysia as well on another occasion. And when you look out the window again, it's just like mind boggling might be the word. Yeah. 
And I mean, with Malaysia, a lot of that is deforestation. Some of it's also reconverted forest from rubber, which was actually the first source of, well, maybe not the first source, but it was a previous source of deforestation. So, Well, and rubber has its own sad story. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the problems we're going to talk about, they're not unique to palm oil. It's just, it's what happens whenever you've got a cash monocrop that you're putting somewhere, you know? And you're not being careful about where you're putting it. Palm is such a such a a, a huge example of it. Maybe the biggest example of it. I don't know. <laughs> Definitely for this moment, it seems like it. As the palm oil industry expands, the the space for new palm oil plantations is often made through deforestation. And one part that's particularly troubling is it's often through peatland clearing. I'll talk more about what peatlands are. But I, I do want to contextualize it a bit because people often talk about palm oil as though it's the single biggest for, source of deforestation. And that's not true at all. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it is a big source of deforestation. It's responsible on its own for 8% of deforestation. That's not small. That's something we need to pay attention to for sure. But it's smaller than I thought it was for sure. Yeah, but if you take into account that 53% of deforestation is caused by agriculture, like that's a pretty small chunk of that uh, section, yeah, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah, so as anybody that's been listening to this podcast for any amount of time will already know, the biggest problem is it's animal agriculture. So 24% of deforestation is land used for livestock directly. And then, of course, land used for their feed after that, probably, right? Yeah. So the next largest source of agricultural deforestation is soybeans, which mostly used to feed animals, and then from corn, which is also mostly used to feed animals. So if we're looking at changing one consumption practice to counter deforestation, palm oil isn't like the obvious thing we should demonize. Just to put things in perspective. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, because you hear about palm so much now, or at least I do, mm -hmm. that, yeah, it just seems like more of a boogeyman than I guess it deserves, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think like if you're going to change one agricultural practice on deforestation grounds alone, palm oil is not where you should go. It's stopping to eat animal agriculture. The data just supports that. But having said that, it is still like 8% of deforestation isn't nothing and it could be less. So we'll talk about that a little bit more. I also want to put it a little bit more in perspective to just say, even in places like Indonesia, where you have a lot of palm oil production, land clearing for pulp paper and timber is actually still a bigger source of deforestation. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. So if we stopped producing palm oil today, we wouldn't stop the deforestation problem, which is not to say that we shouldn't care about deforestation and palm oil. We should. Part of the reason for that is that the forests that are being cleared for palm oil plantations are in some cases really biodiverse or there's some in some cases particularly efficient carbon sinks. So it's like a double whammy. In particular, Indonesian forests are really efficient carbon sinks. They're actually in some cases even more effective than the Brazilian Amazon uh, per hectare for trapping carbon. And that is because there are something called peatlands, which they're basically low-lying rainforests that are located close to coastal areas. So the peat basically exists under the forest and that it, it's essentially just an accumulation of decayed vegetation. And it was formed because there are swampy conditions where plant material fails to fully decay and it can be up to 10 meters um, or more. And that can be sort of an accumulation of thousands of years or longer. 
So that's all like stored carbon that's at the bottom of these forests. And the problem is that, I mean, it's really, it's really great. These peatlands are really effective carbon stores. They can store up to 20 times as much carbon as tropical rainforests on normal mineral soils. So there's this like, they're the super potent carbon store. But the problem is that as the forests above them are deforested, those sinks are released and it makes the, them something that has been basically called a carbon time bomb, which you don't want. <laughs> no, that sounds awful. Well, and also deforestation often involves burning the forest. So it's like a, it's, it's, it's bad. <laughs> it's, it's not good. No, we'll talk more about climate change a little later, but the, just to say that like, that's a particular reason why even if the number is only 8%, maybe this 8% matters particularly more because of the kinds of forests you're deforesting, you know? And the other thing being palm oil is expected to double in the next decade, right? So as it continues to expand, that 8% might become 16% and that wouldn't be good. So there's like, there's an impact of palm oil. It's maybe not as catastrophic as it's sometimes been made out to be, but it is still bad and we should be worried about it. it because palm oil is growing, that effect's going to get worse over time. At the same time, palm oil could be a lot less destructive if we were sustainable about it, right? So you could reduce or avoid deforestation by planting in areas that have already been deforested, and that would solve a lot of our problems at once. Well, I want to talk particularly about biodiversity loss as well. You've, you've already sort of alluded to it, but maybe we'll cover it in a little bit more detail. So this, is, this problem, again, it's, it's connected to that deforestation problem because it's the destruction of ecosystems that these animals are living in. So palm oil expansion could affect 54% of threatened mammals and 64% of threatened birds globally. Some of the species that are threatened by palm oil expansion include the cotton top monkey, the chimpanzee, Sumatran tigers, African forest elephants, orangutans, gibbons, sun bears, which makes me really sad. They're super cute. Yeah. And kangaroos and cassowaries. Oh, I love cassowaries. Well, I was Those just going to the- say, they're the ones I don't feel bad about because they're basically raptors. <laughs> <laughs> if for anyone who doesn't know what a cassowary is... Google it right now. It is a huge, (laughs) terrifying bird that I saw a whole bunch in Australia. And every time I saw it, I felt like I was like, did I accidentally hop in a time machine? (laughs) It's like if you were if you were like, hey, what if I took an emu, already a terrifying creature, and I like (laughs) put a cleaver on its head? (laughs) Cassowary. (laughs) Yeah, I just thought about them as like just if turkeys were is twice as big as like a teenager <laughs> you almost made me do a spit take all over my laptop <laughs> they're really weird but i love them they're super cool animals they like they they're like the only animal that can eat this type of poisoned tree and they eat their seeds and then they poop them out and without cassowaries you lose that tree oh great so they can withstand poison so i can't defeat yeah, them in can. any way <laughs> That doesn't make them more terrifying. Yeah, however scary you thought they were, they're scarier. <laughs> yeah, they're terrifying creatures, but I understand ecologically why we want them to continue to exist. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, one example that I found is, I mean, orangutans are sort of the species that's been used as the poster child against palm oil. There are apparently somewhere between 75,000 and 100,000 100, critically endangered Bornean orangutans. And 
about 10,000 of them are currently found in areas allocated to palm oil. So you can imagine as those are like expanding and expanding, that puts even more of this already critically endangered population at risk. So in addition to the direct loss of habitat from just clear-cutting their homes, palm oil plantations also increase human-wildlife conflict with species that are endangered. So orangutans, again, are a good example of this. Every year, somewhere between 750 and 1,250 orangutans are killed in human orangutan conflicts, which I imagine are just situations where orangutans are coming into conflict with humans because their natural habitat has been destroyed, or they're looking for food or whatever. And the result is that these orangutans get killed. And that's often linked to the fact that these palm oil plantations have expanded. So the effect of palm oil plantations on biodiversity has been described as the creation of green deserts by a Jakarta-based ecologist whose name I couldn't find. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Like oil palms were introduced from a totally different continent to Southeast Asia, so they don't interact super well with the local ecology, which basically means like you're, you're clearing these forests, you're putting in a whole bunch of new trees that the ecology around it doesn't really interact with that much. And so it ends up that you're going from a tropical rainforest, which is one of the most biodiverse ecosystems you can go from, to these these, these tree farms, basically, that has very little biodiversity in it. Yeah, where the, the bugs and the animals, maybe they can't eat palm because they didn't grow up with it, you know, historically speaking, or they can't, they can't hide as well because the camouflage isn't designed for palm. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know specific to um, the Indonesian deserts or um, rainforests, but in a lot of rainforest environments, there are plant life too that will like attach themselves to trees and rainforests and probably yeah. they can't do that on palm trees and the soil's totally different you know etc cetera, etc cetera. the unfortunate thing though is even though there's been a really negative effect of palm oil plantations on biodiversity the reality is that boycotting palm oil is actually likely to displace rather than halt biodiversity loss because it wouldn't it would actually increase the production of other oil crops and palm oil is a really productive plant. So one of the reasons it was produced initially was environmental sustainability, actually, because palm oil is so productive, you don't need very much land to grow it. I found a stat that basically looked at the tons per hectare that's produced by different oils. How many tons of this, this oil do you get out of one hectare of land? And all of the other oils that were on this chart were less than one ton per hectare, and palm oil was 3.3. Three times more productive. Yeah, more than three times more productive. So, so if you were to replace it with anything else, it would be three times more destructive. <laughs> yeah, and like one of the ones on this list is coconut oil, which has its own problems. We'll have to do our, an episode on it, right? So like you're not... The problem fundamentally is that we have to produce a lot of this stuff at an industrial scale, and we don't think enough about how to effectively use land without clearing forests. So as long as that problem's there, it doesn't really matter whether it's palm or some other plant, you're still going to have biodiversity issues. There'll be different ones because they'll be growing somewhere else. But it, the problem is the clear cutting, right? And Palm oil actually arguably creates less of that because it's so productive. It uses less, it, it requires less land to produce the same amount that you would need. Yeah. And it's not like you can turn around and ask 
people in India or China to stop using cooking oil. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's not a realistic no, way to go. No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you can't likewise um, ask everybody in the world to stop consuming vegetable oils. And that also wouldn't be better. <laughs> so there's there's going to be a demand for oil, for um, animal oils of some, animal or plant oils of some kind. And, you know, people have to be able to put it in food. Eat. And yeah, yeah. they just are going to. You have to consume fat. That's a thing that human beings consume. So basically the idea of several environmental groups, and this is not like homogeneously what environmental groups think. But a lot of them, including the International Union for Conservation of Nature and the World Wildlife Fund, have preferred to take the approach where they're pushing for sustainability in palm oil rather than pushing for a boycott or a ban of palm oil. That's not universally what all NGOs think, but it's an approach that I personally think is a smart one, given that dilemma, right? That like you you have to have some replacement for palm oil and it kind of seems like the alternatives will be worse. So you might as well make this as good as you can. That's kind of where I was landing on it. Yeah. So sustainable palm oil would basically involve putting an end to the clearing of native tropical forests for new palm oil plantations. And it would limit demand for palm oil to for non-food uses. So a lot of environmental advocates, advocates are calling for getting rid of the use of palm oil in biofuels and for animal feed. Sustainable palm oil would also mean asking existing palm oil plantations to manage their land responsibly by setting aside forests and other areas identified as important for biodiversity and for carbon. You want to talk about climate change a bit? Yeah. I mean, that's, (laughs) we've, we've been dancing around it this whole time. So let's just dive in. Yeah. So as with deforestation and biodiversity, the problem here is land conversion. So forests and peatlands are carbon sinks. We already talked about how Indonesian peatlands are particularly good carbon sinks. And when these lands are converted into plantations, it releases greenhouse gases. And we also lose those carbon sinks over the longer run. So actually, this is kind of sad, but Indonesia's peatlands have gone from being a carbon sink to a globally significant source of emissions thanks to deforestation and the resulting forest fires. So oil palms like do also absorb carbon dioxide. They are plants, but they do it less effectively than forests. Um, so on net, you're losing out. When fire is used to clear lands for oil plantations, that, first of all, as you were saying, emits greenhouse gases. But it also creates air pollution. So you have these like smoggy areas, and that that's shitty for everybody that lives around forest fires. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Forest fires suck. Uh, <laughs> And actually, hot take, hot take, oh, literally hot for that to be Get a pun. <laughs> People might not have heard so much about the forest fires in Indonesia last year because the bushfires in Australia were so destructive that they kind of really led the news. But they were also a big problem in Indonesia. And 80% of the fires that existed there were being set to clear land for palm oil plantations. So it, like, it was a big public discussion around the Amazon rainforest fires that soy crop fires were causing part of it. And like Bolsonaro was not preventing the setting of fires to clear these the forests. 
I think he was encouraging it. That was like a platform he ran on or something. Was like, yeah, he's I'll great. Get... <laughs> he's like, I'm going to make the industry better. I don't know. I, I I haven't been following Brazilian politics as closely as maybe I should, but I vaguely remember him having a pretty crazy platform when he was running a few years ago. Yeah, environmentalists were like, nah, bro, don't do this. And he was like, yeah, let's do this. And then the companies were like, no, nah, bro. <laughs> You're going to make us look crazy. We don't want that. <laughs> yeah, but that basically that same thing is happening with less Bolsonaro, but the same basic problem is happening in Indonesia with palm oil plantations where these fires are getting set when people are clearing land. And that's a major contributor to wildfires that as the climate warms become increasingly out of control. So we may not be able to get a handle on deforestation over the long run if there's a tipping point that's reached and these forests are no longer stable. So the challenging thing, again, is that oil palm production is more productive than substitute crops. And, you know, there are other problems associated with the substitutes. So we would likely have to convert even more land to keep up with demand if we wanted to go that route. So the last environmental harm that I want to talk about is chemicals use and pollution, which palm oil plantations, they basically use a range of pesticides and herbicides as well as large amounts of fertilizer. And these products can pollute soil and groundwater. We've talked about those kinds of environmental problems in the past. And although palm oil plantations aren't large users of pesticides and fertilizers overall, so they're not like you're not using fertilizers and pesticides on palm oils to the same extent as you are in the wine industry, for example, but they are in use and they're often used indiscriminately, partially because there's just not a lot of regulation. And that can result in water pollution and also harms for workers. So chemicals can pose a big risk to the people that are working on palm oil plantation. And one example that I was able to find was an herbicide that's used on palm oil plantations called paracat dichloride or paracat for short. And it's a highly toxic chemical that's actually banned in the EU and a lot of other countries for that reason. And in Indonesia, it's a restricted substance. So it actually, in a lot of cases, it's being used illegally in Indonesia because there's a requirement that you have to have sufficient training and personal protective equipment to be able to use it even in Indonesia. But Amnesty International found evidence that the use of paracat was going on with workers that weren't trained and didn't have the right equipment. And workers were describing negative health impacts that they had after exposure to these chemicals. So that's just one example of how on palm oil production, you've got the use of pesticides, the use of herbicides and fertilizer that are causing harm not only to the environment, but also to the people that are working on plantations and also living in the communities around them. This is a problem that's also extended to palm oil mills, which also pollute, and they produce about 2.5 metric tons of effluent, which is basically just like water pollution. So 2.5 metric tons of that for every metric ton of palm oil it's produced. So that's quite a lot of waste. So that is the environment and palm oil. <laughs> Yeah. How do you feel? I mean, uh, palm oil is one of those things that I've looked into a little bit in the past. So I'm not as shocked by it as I was when we did seafood and clothing, but I'm still sad. <laughs> 
So that's the end of this episode for now. We're going to we're going to do people in the next episode you were saying. So for for the next episode we'll talk about human rights abuses and we'll also talk about what people can do. So the what the sustainability labels are that you can use and which ones are well they're all kind of flawed but which ones are the least flawed. Yeah, that's going to be really good. I I I mean it's kind of like sugar. This is just such a big crop that it's it's hard. Hello, editing Kyla here, stepping in to say that this is originally where episode one ended, and now I'm going to go ahead and slice you into episode two. That's right, you get a big-ass super episode. Enjoy! For this episode, we'll start by talking about the impact of the palm oil industry on people, and then after that we're going to talk about the big sustainability certification for palm oil which is called the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil and a big debate around that and then after that we'll talk a little bit about like whether you should be boycotting or trying to get sustainable palm oil and you know how you can go about that sound good yeah that's perfect oil palms are one of the most profitable crops for farmers which in part is a success story we'll start with a good thing for people Palm oil has helped to reduce rural poverty in places like Indonesia, so that that's good, that's nice. And uh, palm oil has the potential to improve incomes and employment where it's produced, which is a lot of the times presented as a positive, and indeed it is a positive. There are millions of smallholder farmers that rely on palm oil for their livelihoods in both Malaysia and Indonesia, and then there are smallholders in those 42 other countries that also produce palm oil, just not as many. Yeah, you were saying in the first episode that there's three big players in Palm in regards to like companies, but then you said there was over a million small just farms that that produce trees as well. So uh, that seems really diversified to me. I don't know. Yeah, it's just that they're so small and the large plantations are really big. (laughs) Yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of people that is sustained by palm oil production, whether you're working on a large plantation or whether you're a smallholder farmer or on a medium-sized palm oil plantation. The downside, though, is that the oil palm industry can sometimes hurt communities economically because they lose access to forests and it might not be compensated for sufficiently by economic gains from cultivating oil palms. When palm oil plantations go into communities, there are sort of two problems. Uh, The first one being the harms to workers in terms of the working conditions and the rights, and we'll talk about that a little more. And then the second is stuff around how palm oil plantations impact the communities. And in that, one of the biggest discussion points is indigenous communities. So we'll talk about indigenous land rights as well in this section. But let's start with working conditions. So Amnesty International has reported on the labor abuses on palm oil plantations, and in particular, they have looked at plantations in Indonesia that are linked to Wilmar, um, which is the largest processor and merchandiser of palm oils. They control 43% of the global palm oil trade. I mentioned them in the last episode. They're one of the three big palm oil ones. They are the largest, but there are two others that are also pretty big. So Amnesty's, um, their investigation was specifically looking at Wilmar and the suppliers that they have, as well as like the subsidiaries of Wilmar and the palm oil plantations and mills there. So on the plantations that they were looking at, Amnesty International found evidence of forced and child labor, gender discrimination, as well as exploitative and dangerous working conditions. 
Well, if this was bingo for human rights abuses. <laughs> yeah, and I also, I don't know if, maybe I'm getting numb to this, but I was reading it and I was like, yeah, okay, this sounds like three or four other episodes we've done, you know? Yeah. Big agriculture, it just kind of sucks. It doesn't really matter what industry you're looking at. Yeah, and a lot of times it has to do with the weak governance in a country. And when we talked about the clothing industry, um, we were talking about how offshoring basically took a situation where there were these hard fought over working can, like workers' rights that were created in Western countries, and then offshoring basically replicated those same problems in third world countries or developing countries, whatever your preferred terminology is for. And I mean, palm oil, there wasn't like offshoring because you, you like just can't grow palm oil. <laughs> you can't grow oil palms in Canada. It just wouldn't work. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but I'm sure Saskatchewan would be the best at it if we could. <laughs> <laughs> This is turning into a pro Saskatchewan. I don't think I've ever been to Saskatchewan, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it's a lovely province, but blowing past that. Sorry, Saskatchewan. <laughs> um, <laughs> my point being, the big problem is really that you have governments that aren't willing to step in and these big multinational corporations that they have suppliers or subsidiaries. And so there's like a veil of it not being their fault. And they're like, well, we just don't know. But really, like, they should be held to standards that are higher than that. And that is where a lot of the problems come from. In palm oil, as with a lot of other industries, and especially industries in agriculture, I think we were talking in one of our first episodes about how agriculture is one of the most dangerous industries people can work in. So Amnesty concluded that Basically, the abuses that they had documented were not isolated incidents, but rather they were linked to systemic business practices of Wilmar and its subsidiaries and suppliers. So some of those include the low-level wages that they provide, as well as the use of targets and something called piece rates, which is basically when workers are paid based on tasks that they've completed rather than hours that they've worked. All of that is in like a really complicated system of financial and other penalties for the workers. And they basically concluded that that system is what is creating the biggest source of oppression for workers. So because of those systems, workers that don't meet their targets get their salaries, which are already really low salaries, they get them deducted. Targets are set by individual companies. And I'm going to quote from Amnesty International here. So this is not my opinion. This is what Amnesty International found. The targets set by the companies, quote, appear to be set arbitrarily to meet companies' needs rather than being based on a realistic calculation of how much workers can do in their working hours. So they don't, they're not like commensurate with what a reasonable working day is, is basically the point of that. And because of the targeting system, the workers on the plantations will often get help from their spouses, children, and others to complete tasks. And then they're not paid at all. Yeah, they're not paid at all. Um, so that's a problem, first of all. And secondly, now you've got children working in an incredibly dangerous job. So that was one of the things that uh, Amnesty International documented was the involvement of children in hazardous tasks on palm oil plantations, which, by the way, is illegal under Indonesian law. But nobody's enforcing it. No. And, <laughs> and, and, and they're undocumented because they're just coming in to help their family meet these targets that they can't reach. Well, sometimes they're from the community, but sometimes it's internal migration, yeah. But they don't have a formal employment relationship with a company, although the structure of how workers are paid 
makes it necessary that that workers are sort of soliciting help from their partners, which for harvesters, the amnesty report said it was always men. So we'll talk about gender discrimination a little bit more later. But so their wives are helping out with it. Their kids are helping out with it. Sometimes the kids are as young as eight years old. Essentially, Amnesty found that workers, and especially women, were employed under casual work arrangements, which made them really vulnerable to abuse. So they found that typically the arrangement was, um, like, women were typically working in roles that were called plant maintenance, which I think is just, you know, keeping the palms alive and healthy. And men were typically working as harvesters, so the people going up the trees and, you know, cutting off the fruit bunches and whatnot. And while the harvesters were typically employed as formal employees and permanent employees, the women almost always were casual employees and didn't get benefits or anything like that. So that's sort of a gender disparity. And it was a way that was used to sort of exploit women workers in a way that the men didn't experience as much. And then they're coming in to help their husbands and working even more hours and completely unpaid. That's Ah, I'm getting anxiety just thinking about this. Like, holy shit. Yeah, the other thing is that employers can penalize workers for failing to meet their targets or for mistakes in their work, like if they pick unripe fruit. And that penalty usually is financial in nature. The penalties, though, aren't super transparent, which allows employers to basically exact free work from the workers under the threat of loss of pay or employment. So Amnesty also documented evidence of that, which they consider to constitute forced labor. I mean, people working for no pay, they don't have a choice. I I think that counts as forced labor too. So yeah, working conditions on plantations, not super great. I think this is in large part on the large plantations. So smallholder plantations may not have these challenges. Although I think in a lot of cases, the wages are still pretty low there because, I mean, even though Palm oil is a fairly profitable crop. The margins on agriculture are generally pretty low, especially in uh, developing countries where agriculture tends to be net taxed rather than net subsidized, which is what the situation is here in Canada. So, yay. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about Indigenous peoples, though, because that is an important thing to talk about for palm oil. Um, Indigenous people are losing their land to palm oil plantations, which... I mean, in the last episode, we talk about all the environmental impacts of these forests being clear-cutted. Part of the context that we should add is that in a lot of cases, this is like the traditional and current land that Indigenous people are living on and where they're getting their livelihoods from. So land use is particularly a problem in Indonesia, basically because Land use rights are often disputed due to conflicts between customary land rights. So indigenous peoples will often have a legal right to have a certain plot of land um, and formal property ownership. So who owns sort of like the deed to the property and the Indonesian government is also sort of, they're sort of on the side of the formal property ownership. You know, they're, they're more willing to recognize those rules, even when there are court rulings against, um, plantation owners and like four indigenous peoples. I mean, we talk, we've talked in previous episodes about how governance challenges are the hardest ones. And this is another one of those. 
It's a combination of weak laws, poor government oversight, corruption, and the failure of palm-producing companies to fulfill the duties that they have for human rights due diligence. And all of those things together have led to a loss of land and livelihood for Indigenous peoples in Indonesia. So it's not like one thing that's causing it, but it's all of those things together. And in addition, companies have failed to consult with Indigenous peoples and to provide just and fair compensation for losses that are suffered. And that in some, times, in some cases isn't just um, a loss of land or income. It can also be a source of violence. So in some cases, Indigenous peoples are forcefully re removed from their lands, which is one reason that the Rainforest Action Network has used the term conflict palm oil to describe the industry. Private armies and militia groups are deployed sometimes, and community members have been killed in Indonesia over these land disputes. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, and there are upwards of 600 ongoing land disputes between palm oil companies and rural communities. Just in Indonesia or everywhere? Uh, I think this was specific to Indonesia, but there may be more. So in addition to those land issues, there's also like the, the other effects that happen when there's a plantation that goes up. The main one that I was able to find is that sometimes when palm oil plantations are created on like steep terrain, that can cause soil erosion and it can make communities at high risk of flooding. That seemed to be sort of the main issue aside from losing access to the forest and losing the land itself. Food security, though, is another problem. So this is, this is true for all cash crops. So you can think about sugar and coffee and things like that in the same kind of vein. But the conversion of agricultural land to palm oil can hurt local food security, basically because it means that you're diverting production to a crop that isn't as good for feeding local communities. And then also because there's a higher international price, it can sometimes price consumers out of in the area out of being able to buy it. That's part of the reason that biofuels are being sort of seen as a, a problem for palm oil, because biofuels are pushing up the demand for palm oil even more than it was already up. And that's making it even more difficult for people in surrounding communities to be able to afford this plant that's being grown right in their backyard. And in the meantime, it's taking up productive land that they could otherwise use to grow something that might feed them. I'm always really quiet when we do when we talk about like the the people and and human rights side of stuff because I just I feel like that's like where the biggest gap in my knowledge is and so it's really hard for like I don't know what to say like that sucks <laughs> fuck I mean we're through the human rights part though we're gonna talk about the roundtable on sustainable palm oil next really because I feel like yeah. that's gonna be more positive or oh boy <laughs> oh no oh no if you need me I'll just be lying down in the corner. <laughs> So had you heard of the um, Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, or the RSPO, as I'll call them from now on? Yes, because you mentioned it in our first episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But other than that, no. no. It's not a very well-known label, so it's that's not super surprising. I don't think I've ever seen it, even. No, and uh, we'll talk about why that is a little bit later, but you're not likely to have seen it. Not a lot of companies put it on their products, even if they are certified so the RSPO, it's basically a sustainable palm oil certification. It was created in 2004, and it actually has a pretty similar story to some of the other major eco-labels that are out there. So you might remember the Marine Stewardship Council from our seafood episode. 
The RSPO is founded in sort of a similar way. It's a collaboration between the World Wildlife Fund and Unilever. Those are two players that are also involved in the founding of the Marine Stewardship Council. And then in the case of RSPO, there's also Asian producers and a few other Western brands like Nestle, Tesco, and Cargill, which we will all remember from the COVID-19 outbreaks of this year. I just got to shout out Cargill in a bad way. (laughs) (laughs) Every time you get an opportunity. (laughs) So yeah, RSPO has managed sustainability standards for palm oil production since 2008. It took them a few years. This is this is the case with all eco labels. They sort of get founded and then it takes them a few years to have a bunch of meetings and set up standards because there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to go into that. But they started the sustainability uh, standard in 2008. The backbone of the RSPO standard is a generic set of principles and criteria, and those were adopted in 2005. And they have eight core principles, and they're basically like, what are the things broadly that companies need to adhere to to get the standard? So it's things like transparency, environmental responsibility. They phrase it as responsible consideration of employees, smallholders, and individual communities. But that basically is like, how does it affect socially the sort of fabric of communities around it and what are workers' rights like? Uh, The responsible development of new planting. So that's like, where can you put palm oil plantations? Can you cut down peatlands? Things like that. As well as like following best practices and don't break the law. That's one of their principles. (laughs) They phrase it as compliance with applicable laws and regulations. (laughs) That's such a low bar. Such a low bar, but probably a good rule. (laughs) And I mean, as that Amnesty International report is showing, the companies aren't really even doing that. So basically, they've got those eight um, principles. I didn't say all of them in that explanation. But anyway, uh, each of those principles has corresponding criteria, which are like much more specific rules. And then those criteria are then made even more sort of practical on a national and then local basis. So everything kind of, it's coherent. So everything in the RSPO, the idea is it sort of means the same thing, but then it's suited to local conditions on the margins, you know? Well, that sounds great. It does. That all sounds good. (laughs) And that's, I mean, if people are are wondering like what an eco-label is and how it works, that tends to be the structure of how it's set up. Um, And the RSPO is something called a multi-stakeholder label, which is what you want. It involves a bunch of different organizations, although that can still like it's that still might not necessarily mean that um, communities and NGOs get a strong voice. It just means they are involved in some way. RSPO basically creates standards for the growth of oil palms, as well as the palm oil milling process. So, you know, once you cut down the fruit, you have to get them to a mill to get processed right away. So RSPO covers both of those. And it also covers something called the chain of custody. And anytime you hear that, that just means like how the palm oil gets traced from step one to step like whatever, you know, from when it's grown to when it goes to the store. Although with RSPO, they're not super great at this. Mm, I can't think of very many labels that are. That's hard. It's hard to trace stuff. Our world is too globalized. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Uh, Maybe we'll do a a conflict minerals episode because I know a lot more detail on why it's complicated. It kind of seems abstract that like you should be able to figure it out, but the practicalities do sometimes make it 
more complicated. I mean, we should definitely do an episode <laughs> on conflict minerals. Yeah. Maybe when we do our electronics, I don't know. Although that's going to be its own thing too. Oh my gosh. Episodes for years. <laughs> so <laughs> there are also separate standards. And this was actually just created last year or the year before. It's very recent. There's, there's a separate standard for smallholder palm fault farmers. And that is basically responding to the challenge that small producers can have in obtaining sustainability certifications, right? Because when, you, when you're trying to get certified as a producer, you usually have to pay for audits that are external, and you also have to, when you decide to sign up, meet all of their standards. And that's good because we want or organizations that are certified to actually meet the standards that they say, but it can be a challenge for small producers, especially small farmer producers in developing countries, to first of all be able to pay for the auditors and to see the value of doing that, especially when you're selling to a market that doesn't care. Also to like be able to get the paperwork for the management processes and to have everything sort of all your ducks in a row, that can be really hard. So the RSPO created the smallholder standard to basically ask smallholders to make improvements over time rather than asking them to do everything up front. And the idea is let's bring these smallholders into, into the, the standard as well so that we can get more of the industry into the standard, which then means we can shape palm oil as a whole, which is a challenge because right now only 14% of palm oil is RSPO certified. So RSPO is the largest and by many accounts the most robust palm oil certification that's available, but it has still been widely criticized, so we'll have to talk about those criticisms. The, the first criticism that I want to cover for the RSPO, so it starts with a thing that sounds really good. I had mentioned that RSPO is a multi-stakeholder organization, so that means there are different voices involved in defining what the rules are, which sounds really good. There are basically seven groups of stakeholders that are included in RSPO's General Assembly which is the body that sets the rules. So that includes palm oil growers, which is probably good. You want that. Palm oil processors and traders, consumer goods manufacturers, retailers, banks and investors, and then environmental and nature NGOs and social development NGOs. Do you notice anything about that list? No. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. Um, I noticed a couple of things when I was thinking about it today. Uh, one is that that list includes quite a lot on the business side and not very much on the social responsibility, environmental responsibility oh, side, right? Like yeah. of the seven groups, five of them are business side. Okay, yeah, you're right, yeah. Which can be a problem. It also doesn't include unions. It also doesn't include indigenous peoples, maybe in social development NGOs, but um, not explicitly. So the RSPO has been criticized for being industry dominated and for failing to include key stakeholders. And when I first saw that and I was like, oh, it's a multi-stakeholder group, though it should have all those voices. But I understand the criticisms now because really, like, you're technically multi-stakeholder, but you're missing a lot of groups. And also, I think those, those groups don't tend to have very much power. So some of the criticisms say that the missing voices include smallholder producers, which is maybe a thing the standard's thinking about for the future, so that would be good. Labor unions, uh, social and environmental groups, which do formally have some role, but are outvoted by the industry interest. Indigenous peoples and organizations, and then also women's groups, which is relevant because 
um, there has been evidence of gender discrimination on plantations. Yeah, all of those things would be great. You're right. <laughs> I honestly, I didn't even think of unions because I didn't think of the industry as a place where unions would even exist. Yeah, but I mean, that's part of the problem, right? Like, if yeah, you're, if you're the RSPO is a really ambitious standard in a certain sense. It like we talked about the Marine Stewardship Council, it really only covers environmental issues. And then like, if you're caught human trafficking, you can't get certified, which <laughs> we talked about as a major weakness of the standard. RSPO doesn't have that conceptual standard. It does try to cover environmental and social issues. But if you're not involving unions, and if you're not allowing like putting in standards on like collective representation, how are you really meaningfully getting workers' rights? If you're not including Indigenous peoples formally as having a voice, how are you dealing with Indigenous rights and communities that are affected? And, you know, if you're not meaningfully involving environmental and social NGOs to the point where they actually have power, then, you know, how are the standards actually reflecting the push that they need to? And I think that's where some of the debate comes in on that. And one of the ways that that practically has an impact uh, is that only a small proportion of palm oil-related land use conflicts are sufficiently acknowledged and resolved within the RSPO's institutional dispute resolution mechanism. So if you had a more powerful voice for Indigenous peoples, I think you might not see that problem as much. And that's also the viewpoint of critics of the RSPO. So some of the major critics of the RSPO include Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, although they they are also trying to work to improve the standard. They, they just are willing to sort of like kick it as well, you know, <laughs> trying to push it to be better. <laughs> so one of the big things that they push the RSPO on is its low stringency of compliance enforcement, which is a really big problem. If you have a standard and you're not enforcing it adequately, you don't really have a standard. So from that Amnesty International report that I was quoting before, they came to the conclusion because a lot of the plantations they were looking at were actually RSPO certified, which is supposed to have workers' rights in it. Oh, no. Yeah. So they concluded that the RSPO is acting as a shield, which deflects greater scrutiny of Wilmar's and other companies' practices. And that's a quote from Amnesty International. That's not my opinion. So they're getting away with this stuff because nobody's looking at them because they figure the RSPO has already looked at them. Yeah, and it, it like majorly deflects attention not only from what the companies are doing, so it, it makes it more difficult for you to say, hey, Unilever, you got to get better, because Unilever can say, oh, we're members of the RSPO, which has got the World Wildlife Fund in it, right? Like That's a really good reputational shield for companies like that. On the other hand, having the RSPO also deflects attention from the real need for public reform in places like Indonesia and Malaysia, where you really need better laws, and that's the main problem. So that's sort of the second criticism, is that the RSPO standard, it sort of gives a good excuse for national governments not to do anything. Then critics have pointed to weaknesses within the standards themselves. So actually, the RSPO initially avoided defining what sustainability means, and they just decided to go forward with the standards without defining that, which seems <laughs> like an important thing to do. They since have, but like, I, I think it is a lot of wiggle room in just the word sustainability, you know? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that is emblematic of the problem with the RSPO, that it's an organization that I think the people working there, my impression anyway, is that they really are trying their best. 
and that they have a real intention to try to improve palm oil. But you have this push-pull of industry that really doesn't want to change that much and doesn't really see a reason to because consumers don't know what palm oil is. If they do, they want to kind of forget that it's in the items they're buying. And they also aren't willing to pay a price premium because they're explicitly usually buying the stuff because it's cheap. So companies don't really have any reason to try to be more sustainable on palm oil. We haven't made it enough of a consumer issue. And so these environmentalists are like punching at the RSPO saying, you suck, you're not good enough, which is true. It's not good enough. But companies are saying, hey, why are you dragging us this far? Like, we were willing to work with you a little bit, and now you're trying to pull us a lot further than we want to go. So it's a really tricky position for the RSPO to be in. I understand it. But the emphasis that the RSPO has on consensus decision-making, which again is understandable, um, can also make it incapable of dealing with contentious and controversial issues. And even the moderate stringency that the RSP already has, um, has led major stakeholders to leave. A a third criticism, fourth, whatever number of criticism, (laughs) although although the RSP, yeah, a final criticism, we'll say. Although the RSPO has recently devoted some attention to the issue, it's still very difficult for smallholder producers to afford certification. And they also have less of an incentive to get RSPO certified because especially small and medium producers are often, they're disproportionately supplying the Indian, Chinese, and Pakistani markets where they're selling it for cooking oil and there's not really demand for um, sustainable palm oil, which you would you would charge at a higher price and get the price premium, and that's generally the incentive to have sustainability labels. So yeah, why is certification uptake so low? There's kind of an interesting situation here for palm oil, right? When you think about most sustainability labels with agricultural products, there's usually a specific consumer product that has a recognizable link to the agricultural product. So coffee. Coffee beans to coffee, right? Yeah, yeah. Coffee. Yeah, but whereas uh, palm oil is, I think, where you're going is it's in everything and nothing is really, it could be, it could be in your lipstick and it could be in your chips. Yeah. And consumers mostly don't know there's palm oil in a product, which how could you? It's got 200 different names, which probably how companies want it. Mm -hmm. Producers mostly don't want to emphasize that there's palm oil in their items, partially because palm oil has baggage, and partially because palm oil is not usually the major ingredient in the product. And for that reason, it makes it more difficult to develop that price premium on certified palm oil. And even if companies like Unilever use RSPO certified palm oil and are buying the more expensive palm oil that's more sustainable, they're not necessarily going to put the label on their product because if they're selling you peanut butter, they don't want to emphasize that there's palm oil in the peanut butter. They want to emphasize the peanuts in the peanut yeah, butter. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So you're very rarely going to see RSPO certification on a product because consumers don't care enough to think about palm oil when they're buying everything. And they also mostly don't know. <laughs> there's so many other things to think about. <laughs> yeah. And it's not a thing that's going to be an advertising feature for most products. Which, which makes it harder to sell the business case for getting certified. Yeah, because really you're just doing it out of the goodness of your heart. There's not a lot of financial motivation, which is 
unfortunately, how the world tends to work. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's worth noting that I mean, we talked about the shift to palm oil and how it was a large part driven by the fact that palm oil is super cheap. So if you make it more expensive, that, again, might shift the calculus in terms of whether palm oil is really what you want to use. It just defeats the whole purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a difficult problem. I think if you get enough consumer pressure and information around palm oil, you can change that calculus. And once you have enough consumers that care and there's enough certification, you can shift the entire industry practices, which is what RSPO is trying to do. They're trying to get expansion of the standard to be large enough that it shifts the entire industry. So they're trying to like create a big tent, but doing so while they have stringent enough sustainability standards that it matters. And that's like, gosh, that's just such a hard balance to strike. I feel for them. We need this episode to go viral, you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can really help them out if you care about sustainable palm oil. <laughs> everybody, everybody listen to this. <laughs> so a lot of times when people talk about palm oil, the frame is, should you boycott or should you support sustainability certification? Do you, do you have thoughts on that now that you've, you know, now that I've told you all these things, <laughs> just spoken at you? <laughs> now I have uh, all of the information. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess, shoot, I don't know, because the sustainability label is so flawed that in some cases it might be even making the situation worse. I don't, I don't know, uh, because... Like my my initial reaction, like my gut reaction is to go for the sustainability logo because there are no alternatives and people need vegetable oil. That's just how it is. Considering there's no alternatives. And I guess the more you choose the sustainability backed items, the bigger the sustainability logo is going to get and the more work they'll be able to do and the better they'll become. So I guess that's where I'm landing. <laughs> That's more or less where I land, too. I think people could reasonably come down on different sides on this. But I come down on the sustainability side, sustainability certification side, rather than boycotting palm oil, largely because, yeah, you're right, it's ubiquitous because it's cheap, but there are no real alternatives that wouldn't cause problems. So I think it would be counterproductive to suggest that we switch to an alternative vegetable oil. I don't, I don't know. I think just think the best you can do is to try to remember that consumers have power. Well, and I think, I mean, this is a podcast about ethical consumption. And for the most part, every time we finish an episode, the biggest answer is consume less. You know, if I'm eating fewer bags of chips, it's better for my body and it's better for the planet. So I don't know. Well, in this case, I think it might just be consume palm oil differently, right? First, start by looking for social and environmental certifications. So assuming that you've decided you're not going to go palm oil free, the RSPO is better than nothing. Is it perfect? No, it's not even close to perfect. It's not great. But it, it is better than nothing. And it is a standard where there's a legitimate effort there. So I think picking that team and deciding to go for it is a good choice with palm oil. If you're trying to figure out what what brands might have RSPO certification, you can go to the World Wildlife Fund website. They have a palm oil buyer's scorecard. I've got that in the research notes, uh, so you can click on the link there. And they have a list of brands that 
it shows who's an RSPO member or not, and then um, whether they've committed to only sourcing sustainable palm oil. The other thing that you can do is look at the Rainforest Action Network's recommendation, which is that you, you look for palm oil that only has Palm Oil Innovation Group, or POIG, certification, which is the, the only standard that they see as being truly free of deforestation, peatland destruction, and exploitation. And you might be thinking, oh, hey, here's this other stronger standard. Kristen, why didn't you mention it until the end of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the reason for it is it's basically like a new initiative that is an add-on to the RSPO. So all POIG retailers and manufacturers are RSPO members. That's a lot of acronyms, but hopefully y'all <laughs> followed me there. Uh, and they have to be RSPO certified. So it's basically a stronger version of that RSPO. POIG doesn't have very many certified products right now, but it might be the solution in the future. And at the very least, showing support where you can for POIG helps to pull the RSPO to be a more progressive standard, which I think most of our listeners will want. Some noteworthy POIG members include Danone, L'Oreal, and Calibo, so... There are a couple of brands that have signed on, not super many, but some of them. Actually, speaking of brands that have signed on to sustainability missions, uh, when I was looking to see if McDonald's used palm oil in their French fries, because I really wanted French fries during our challenge, <laughs> I found they have like a whole web page that, they, that they've, they've teamed up with the RSPO and they're like, yeah, we're going to try and source 100% renewable palm. And I'm like, okay, cool, McDonald's. I like this greenwashing. <laughs> Yeah, it's not perfect, but it's good. <laughs> Better than nothing, which also feels like the motto of our podcast. The motto of our podcast. We need to learn how to say that in Latin and then get it, <laughs> get it printed up. <laughs> Anyways, you, you were saying important stuff. That was stuff. a nice callback. I like that. <laughs> so yeah, if you can't find POIG for what you're looking for, another option might be to to try to balance workers' rights by supporting the RSPO smallholder standard. So if you can find palm oil that was produced from smallholders, that can be beneficial. And another option is it's a not explicitly a fair trade label because fair trade doesn't have palm oil standards yet, but there's a label that's substantively like fair trade called fair palm, and it's a label for palm oil that's grown by smallholders in West Africa. So if you can find any products that are produced with fair palm, you can feel pretty good, at least about the worker's angle. They also have some commitments to environmental sustainability. You can also try doubling up to get uh, palm oil that is organic and RSPO certified. So our organic labels, again, they only deal with like pesticides and fertilizers. So on their own, they can't address the problems of deforestation and, you know, biodiversity loss and those other problems that we talked about. So for that, you really do need to lean on the RSPO, even though it's imperfect. But if you double up and get something that's RSPO and organic, then you can know that workers weren't harmed by chemical use. So that's kind of nice. Um, if you are looking for a tool that you can use, the Ethical Consumer, which is a, a website and magazine, has worst and best ratings, and they've created lists of brands that are worst and best for palm oil. So some brands that you might want to avoid, they have listed as uh, Nestle, 
uh, Mondelez, which apparently does Cadbury, Domino's Pizza, uh, Pizza Hut, KFC, Subway, TGI Fridays, Pizza Express, L'Occitane, the like um, perfume company, and then Procter and Gamble, which just makes all kind of stuff, but one of their brands is Head and Shoulders. You can go to Ethical Consumers' website to look for more brands on that list. Those were just some of the ones that popped out at me. There were many, 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 many more. I must <laughs> emphasize that. <laughs> they also have a list of recommended brands, and those are the brands that got their best rating for palm oil use. So Ethical Consumer is a British publication, and a lot of the times, the worst performers on like any metric, they're oftentimes big companies, so I often recognize them. And the best performers, sometimes they're big companies, but a lot of times they're like small British chains or small British shops. So I oftentimes don't recognize them. So I'll, I'll list the ones that I recognized. So the top two are British, but I recognize them because they're fairly well known. So Marks and Spencer got their best rating. Waitrose also got their best rating. And then the last, th the last three, so the first one was Lush. Yeah, Lush. Of course. <laughs> Lush actually, um, so a lot of my personal care products are through Lush. And so for our challenge, I wasn't going to replace the stuff even if they turned out to not do so well, although I already knew that Lush is pretty good on most ethical criteria. But I looked through their palm oil and they actually have this whole page that is like, bruh, we looked at palm oil and it was tough. <laughs> <laughs> and then go through the whole thing. At least they're straight about it. They're like, yeah, man. Like, they're like, wow, we heard about palm oil and the orangutans, and we were like, fuck. And then, you know, we were like, okay, we'll just get RSPO certified. And then we heard that that sucked. And so then we thought we'd go palm oil three, but then we learned that, like, we can't do that because there's literally nothing else that'll foam your shampoo bar the way that it does. So, <laughs> so there's like this whole story that they go through. And now they're trying to phase out palm oil because that's what they've decided is best, but they're they're sort of not there yet. Anyway, another brand on their the best list was Nivea, which is another sort of like personal care brand. And then I just want to give a shout out to G Organics, even though I don't think most people will have heard of it because uh, that's where both of our floss is from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like shout out, shout out, <laughs> waste free mouthwash tablets. So yeah, you can you can try to find good brands or at the very least try to avoid the worst brands. And then the last thing you can do, which we always recommend on this podcast, is get involved, aka yell at your member of parliament. <laughs> <laughs> so get involved with campaigns that are asking companies to implement sustainable palm oil practices. If you're looking for where those campaigns are, just Google Greenpeace Palm Oil or Rainforest Action Network Palm Oil. Those are two of the big environmental ones. And then you can also, if you go into our research notes, we've listed a bunch of NGOs as sources for the various problems. And most of those NGOs will have corresponding campaigns. So lots of ways to find petitions to sign. I promise you there will be no shortage of that. And then you can also write companies that you love to tell them to use uh, sustainable palm oil because it tells them that the people that buy their products care. All right, great. Well, I feel like I'm more informed. I hope that our listeners feel that way too. You always do such thorough research. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can't start linking to our research notes page directly in our feed so you guys don't even have to go to our website. We'll see uh, what I can do there. But if you do want to reach out to us directly, you can get us on Twitter. It's at Pullback Podcast. 
Uh, and our, the, our next challenge starts tomorrow. We're going to be doing uh, Plastic Free July, but we're doing it a month early so that you guys can listen to what we have to say on that and then do your own Plastic Free July challenge, which we I have done it once before. And it's uh, if you want to really challenge yourself, it's a good one. <laughs> yeah. And um, Kyla, I would just like to also point out that we're doing this in a pandemic where many stores have no reusable bag policies. <laughs> yeah, I've thought about that. Um, so we're going to talk about that for sure. <laughs> like this challenge wasn't going to be tough enough. 